I wonder when we turn up to church on a Sunday morning, who are our favourite people at church? Who are the faces we most seek out because they're the ones we really want to see or chat to or feel included by or feel good when we're around them? Who are our favourites? And when newcomers come through the door, people we don't know, do we make a point of embracing them? Well, not literally, of course, because they'd probably turn around and run a mile. But are we friendly to them, as friendly to them as we are to our favourite people? Nearly all the New Testament writers implore the early church that God will not judge them on how they treat rich people, but on how they treat poor people. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says that how we treat the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the poor, the sick, that will be the test of how we responded to his love for us. That's going to be the measure by which we're judged. In our passage from James, he refers to the royal law found in Scripture, which is, of course, love your neighbour as yourself. So we're not to have favourites, Scripture tells us. We're to look out for those who perhaps we would not naturally be drawn toward and treat them just how we would wanted to be treated if we were the stranger or the hungry or the lonely. If we were that person coming to church to find out if God's family really did have anything for them. That's why the famous warm welcome at St Matthew's is so important. But then in the Gospel reading, we heard about this extraordinary incident when Jesus appears, to begin with, to do exactly the opposite of what I've just been saying. He's travelling in what is effectively, for him, foreign territory, in the vicinity of Tyre, we're told, which is today's southern Lebanon, about 50 miles south of Beirut. And the Gospel writer Mark tells us that on this particular occasion... Jesus is trying to avoid the crowds. He's tracked down by this Syrophoenician woman, which simply means that she was someone from that area. Um, that was the part of the Roman province of Syria, and, uh, and it wasn't primarily Jewish. The woman has a young daughter who, we're told, is possessed by an unclean spirit, an evil spirit, and she begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Verse 25 tells us that she throws herself at Jesus' feet, clearly convinced that he can help her daughter. She's desperate. And you know, so many people today are desperate in different ways. Some are obviously desperate, but many are carrying desperation around with them and not showing it on the outside. Bernard Levin, one of the um, great commentators, newspaper columnists of the late 20th century, who was actually not a man of faith, once wrote this. He said, Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts that they desire, together with such things as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, and however many cars and mobile phones and 
television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edge of it, it aches. I've always been struck by those words because they so well describe what my own life was like before I discovered that there was a real answer to that desperation, that Jesus held the key. And this Syrophoenician woman, she was desperate, but she knew, she had a sense that Jesus held the key. And so she bows down at his feet and begs him to heal his daughter, her daughter. But what he says to her is shocking, because it seems that at first he rejects her and even insults her. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. What does he mean? Well, what Jesus is saying is exactly what Jewish tradition would have demanded at that time. As far as the people were concerned, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, a holy man, a teacher. And in Jesus' day, a rabbi would never have considered even talking with a strange woman, let alone a strange foreign woman. The rabbi's job was to teach God's holy law to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, and not to mix with foreigners. The children, Jesus refers to, are the Jewish people. And the dogs, he refers to, are the foreigners, including this woman. It really is shocking. I suppose a modern equivalent in Reading might be, perhaps, I don't know, a young Polish man turning up at a building site and asking the foreman for work. And the foreman saying something like, you know, there's no job here for you. There are too many foreigners like you taking all our jobs as it is. It's quite shocking. That's, that's what it sounds like when we read that passage. But the woman is unflappable. She doesn't react. She knows exactly where he's coming from. But she also has a sense that Jesus is bigger than religious tradition. That he's different. That he still holds the key to her daughter's desperate need. And so she answers him back and she says, Sir, even the dogs under your table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, she knew that Jesus still had the capacity, the compassion, the power and the love to give to others and not just his own people. That God doesn't really have favourites. Her child had an unclean spirit, a demon. She's being tormented by something, and Jesus holds the key to saving her life. And people reading the Bible today often think that stories of demon possession are either far-fetched or the result of ignorance about particular medical or psychological problems. That's a, a secular view, if you like. But I think it's much more about language. We may not call them demons today, but I've seen enough suffering caused by addictions, eating disorders, obsessive behaviours, phobias, abuse, including satanic abuse, and a whole variety of other things to know that many people are possessed. That whatever name you give it, they desperately need releasing from their demon. A young woman... A great friend of ours called Jess, who lived with us for a while, suffered from an obsessive disorder which 
manifested itself in what you or I would probably label as anorexia nervosa. She would hardly eat. She went through every psychologist her parents could find, every psychiatrist, all the doctors, the hospitals, you name it. And she went down and down and down. Nothing they did or gave her or said to her or encouraged her with had any effect whatsoever. She nearly died many times. They had to sometimes restrain her and force-feed her by tube, and they had to section her under the Mental Health Act to keep her alive. Everything you could imagine was done. Nothing worked. For 15 years, she lived in a kind of no-man's land between life and death, regularly surviving at body weights way below what you and I could survive at. Her mother, Carolyn, who herself had been terribly abused as a child by a group of Satanists, was desperate to help her daughter, but nothing she did seemed to help. To all intents and purposes, it seemed that Jess was possessed by a demon which was determined to kill her. A couple of years ago, in a last-ditch attempt to try anything that might help, she managed despite her physical state, to enrol on a programme in Sheffield called City Hearts, run by a church. Among other things, it helps women who have been damaged by, or badly hurt by, by life experience that they've had. And over many months, the team at City Hearts loved her, prayed with her, encouraged her, and they did all they could to show her God's unconditional love in their actions, in their words, in their prayers. And a couple of weeks ago, Kirsty and I met up with Jess when she was down visiting her parents in Newbury. And she is completely transformed. She's been freed of her demon by the love of Jesus poured into her life by the people of the church. She's healthy and happy and confident, loving life for the first time in so many years. Her mother and father are over the moon, understandably. They've got their daughter back. So back to the woman who's begging Jesus to save her child. Well, Jesus concludes the conversation by acknowledging her faith and tells her that her daughter is healed. Jesus' culture, the tradition, would have rejected her. But as James wrote in the passage in the letter we heard read this morning, it's favoritism that's to be rejected and it is mercy which triumphs over judgment. And that's what happens. Jesus puts mercy before judgment and he heals her daughter. And sure enough, when the mother gets home, the demon has gone. Her daughter has been released from her torment. Now, not all of our demons are so obvious as the one in this story or the one in Jess's life that I've spoken about. But many of us carry them around with us, well hidden or not so well hidden, perhaps surfacing as uncontrolled anger when we're put under stress or a tendency to run when we feel rejected or a thousand other ways. And one of the things that I've most loved about the last 12 years that I've been involved with the Alpha Course is the absolute joy and wonder at seeing people set free of their demons as they discover for themselves a God who loves them unconditionally. A God who, because of Jesus Christ, we can not only come together and worship on a Sunday, but a God with whom we can have a personal 
day-to-day, hour-to-hour relationship. A God who we can talk to and hear from. A God who can guide our lives in a much better direction than we can do ourselves. And a God who, through Jesus Christ, can release us from our demons. I'll never forget, on one of the Alpha Days, on a a course almost ten years ago now, we were standing and, and we were just praying for God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And I noticed a young woman who I'll call Melissa, it's not her real name, but I'll call her Melissa for, for now. She was in my group and she was standing there with her, with her hands just out like this and she had tears pouring down her face. And, um, and after a while I went over and I said to her, you know, what's wrong? Is, is, is anything wrong? And, um, and through, her, through her tears she, she smiled and said, no, no, it's fine, everything's fine. She said, she said for years and years I have felt so disgusted with myself because I binge on food. I eat massive quantities of food and then I'm sick and I feel terrible. But I can't stop. And I've just thought what an awful person I am, that no one could love me if they knew what I was really like. But, she said, now I know that God loves me just as I am. But I think he's healing me from it too. And he has. And today, Melissa has a lovely faith. She comes alongside other women who are struggling with a variety of issues, and she helps them to know the love of God in their lives. And over the years on the Alpha Course, it's been such a privilege to see men and women's faith really come alive, to see lives changed and enriched and broken hearts mended and people released of their demons, just as Jesus released the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from hers. That's why I'd ask every one of you here this morning, if you haven't done it before, come on the Alpha Course. And better still, take one or two of um, these invitations that are out on the welcome desk, take one or two of these invitations and, uh, and invite someone else to come along with you, a friend or a colleague or a relation, a neighbour, The best invitation you can make is to say, look, why don't you come along and try the first evening? Because there's no need to ask people to sign up for a a whole course. That's not what we ask at all. We don't mind a bit if they only come along and try the first evening. And if they like it, they can continue. And if they don't, that's fine. It's not for them. And so... A good starting point, we heard Paul talk about the the quiz coming up in a couple of weeks, a good starting point might be to invite a few people to join you in a team on the quiz, because at the quiz night they'll hear just a few minutes introduction to the Alpha course, and uh, you won't even have to make the invitation yourself, it'll be done for you. So this year, in summary, this year, let's not keep God's love a secret to ourselves. He doesn't have favourites. Let's share it with as many people as possible, as we can, as we invite the parish to explore the Christian faith through the Alpha Course and see lives changed and healed and set free. Amen.